Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Engendered, the show that features stories that explore the systems, practices, and policies that enable gender-based violence and oppression and the solutions to end it. We use gender as a lens to understand power and oppression, teach feminism, and decolonize hearts and minds one story at a time. Engendered is sponsored by Can Do It, spelled K-A-N-D-U-I-T, and I'm your host, Terry Yuan. Welcome, Michael. Hi. Hi. How are you, Terry? Good. Thank you for joining on this episode of Reflections, where we look back on the criminal justice system. We're going to be talking about episode 47 with Dorchin Lighthold on incarcerated women and survivors of gender-based violence, episode 48 with Dawn Elizabeth Wilcox of Women Count USA on femicide as a national crisis, episode 49, Rachel Louise Snyder on her new book, No Visible Bruises and Domestic Violence as Intimate Partner Terrorism, and finally, episode 50 with Richie Rosita on teaching feminism to reduce recidivism. Let's start with episode 47. You actually were present with me when we interviewed Dorchin. Absolutely. Looking back, did you have a different perspective on the interview, listening to it a second time? Every time that I listen to an interview, and in many cases I do listen to an interview more than once, this time I was able to write down some of the things that I missed the first time. The second time that I listened to it, there were definitely things that um, that really stood out to me. What were some of the things when you were there live that really struck you and surprised you? When you spoke about the media and the effect that it has on the opinion of the public, that was something that struck me right away. Uh, so she mentioned that there are many ways where where media in general will have the topic of violence against women incorrect, while, while you sort of mentioned that perhaps public knowledge should be aware of some things. Like, for example, the case of Christine Blasey Ford, where she felt that she forgot certain things, certain parts of her testimony, and that's just how trauma works. And that's something that you may have seen in Law and & Order, and you felt that that was common knowledge, and you really couldn't understand why a lot of people didn't understand that. So you're saying when Dorchin was referencing Dr. Ford's testimony during the Kavanaugh hearings, I was surprised that there wasn't a greater cultural literacy around understanding trauma. That's, that's the more eloquent way to put it, yes. <laughs> um, absolutely. Well, so. well, I think also, wouldn't you say that we've had enough episodes on our show at this point addressing trauma and its impact specifically? And I also think that we've had enough experiences in culture where the effects of trauma, let's say with soldiers, not necessarily with survivors of domestic violence or intimate partner violence, it's very clear what PTSD or trauma looks like for a soldier who comes back and has flashbacks or has triggers or has experiences. And why isn't it that we haven't translated those experiences to other forms of trauma? I think it's different when you're talking to an individual as opposed to a group of people. Because if we're talking about a group of people, I don't think that a group of people are in general well-informed. There may be a few people within the that group that may be informed, that may understand, especially when you're talking to an expert like Dorchen Lighthold, right? She already knows the topic and from, from back to front. So when she sees something in the media that stands out to her as wrong, it's, it's very easy to her because to her, this is something that is 
is is common knowledge, but to her in her field, right? I don't think that the general public understands trauma like she would. I, for example, the PTSD, since you mentioned that, I think a lot of people hear what PTSD is, but they may not necessarily have an understanding of it uh, like a counselor would, like in some of uh, the people that you've interviewed before. I don't, I don't, I don't think that that's the case. So that's why I would caution against saying that, oh, well, you know, people should know. And then that's why. If you listen to, to some of the testimonies that other people um, go through where they say, I don't remember, I don't recall, they may have a whole bunch of different excuses of why they don't remember, or they don't recall, or sometimes they just don't want to say certain things. I, there was a couple of hearings, actually, that happened with a lot of men that nobody ever questioned it, right? But I think because of the biases that we have, it is it's unfortunate that a lot of people look at a, a survivor and and question her more. What about when you heard some of the statistics that I shared on the show um, from the ACLU on female incarceration? So the high rates, for example, of incarcerated gender violence survivors who experienced disabilities or who were mothers or who had experienced abuse prior to their incarceration or perhaps was incarcerated as a response to their defending themselves against their abuse. Were these statistics surprising to you? They were, especially when you spoke about recidivism, that the fact that the majority of these women who have been victims of, of, of trauma through uh, intimate partner violence, that they're not likely to to go back to jail because of violence. So it's it's one of those things where it should be tried in a case by case basis. So you say it should be viewed on a case by case basis. On the other hand, what Dorchin and Sanctuary for Families initiative is addressing is a systemic problem where there are disproportionate number of gender violence survivors incarcerated at higher rates at longer conviction times and in harsher terms than their counterparts. So the same crime, first of all, if they were committing a crime in self-defense as a response to their being a victim of abuse, it's not necessarily considered in the sentencing or in the overall conviction. And secondly, if they get a certain sentencing, it's not proportionate to what men would get for the same crime. And so in other words, women get harsher penalties for engaging in the same crime. So there's a gender bias there. Right. So I think systemically, what I want to address is that the criminal justice system already has all these gaps with regard to creating barriers for people to report for survivors of gender-based violence, of, of rape, sexual assault, domestic violence, to come forward, to be able to protect them, to be able to give them incentives to want to participate willingly in the criminal justice system. And then when the criminal justice system fails them, it creates additional barriers for their safety by penalizing them when they engage in potentially either self-defense or their trauma reaction comes out in a way that becomes characterized as a criminal activity. Right. Even Dorchin mentioned how there was a case where 
the victim actually felt safer in a setting of, of incarceration, right? It, she felt that her life was in danger. And once she was able to escape from it, and although she was uh, in jail, she felt like she had more support. And it's very sad for a person to have to survive that way and just, and for our society to put them in a situation like that. And there's no support for a woman like that. So I think bringing this into light would be helpful, hopefully in the long run. I want to add also, I believe I recall Dorchin saying that survivors who are incarcerated not only feel safer, but feel more at peace. And having that sense of peace be given to someone once they're incarcerated or because of incarceration is a very, very sad reflection of how our society fails to protect them in their homes. I think the reason that women are treated unfairly in the court system is just the public opinion. I think that has a lot to do with it. When in the news it comes out that a woman uh, accused a man falsely of rape, and, and then there's a lot of hate towards the woman. And so then there's this opinion that women do this all the time. And I think, but I think all of that contributes to the harsher penalties that women ultimately uh, have to deal with once they are accused and attacked in this way. What about the fact that a lot of survivors of gender-based violence who are incarcerated have either experienced mental health challenges or are currently experiencing mental health challenges or... or uh, the, the, I think that's an issue. The issue that there are uh, substance abuse issues and mental health issues with the prison population in general is something that a place where our society is failing, the prison system, right? Especially when you're talking about uh, for-profit prisons. It's, it doesn't just fail women. I think it fails society in general. Yeah, I agree. However, disproportionately, women are incarcerated in, with harsher sentences and with more biased um, sentencing criteria, uh, and also, as, as Dorchin discussed, parole criteria, right? right? So they're less likely to be released compared to men, right. even though they're engaging in just as positive behavior. Right. Yes. I hope that the general population will hopefully come to a point where they understand this. I think, in general, public opinion on on, uh, things like uh, racism and sexism has changed very slightly over the years. And I really feel hopeful that one day more people will be aware of these biases that we have and these injustices that we see both in, in the prison system and outside of the system. Let's go to the next episode, 48 with Dawn Elizabeth Wilcox of Women Count USA. So she's a registered nurse who is also a domestic violence survivor and activist. And on her own with very little funding, she runs Women Count USA, a national database that compiles data on femicides in the United States or murders of women, so to speak. And I will use the word femicide because in our discussion, Apparently, this is not something that people like to name. They don't like to name when women are necessarily disproportionately victimized systemically. And so I want to be able to use that term and give it light.
Right. The word femicide. She mentioned that she wants to see if the government statistics are accurate. She gave us a couple of examples of, of how women have had to deal with uh, abusive men where they were targeted specifically because they were women. I don't think that this is something that people talk about in the media very often. And uh, listening to this episode was very eye-opening because of that. Was it surprising to you the fact that there were all these gaps in our data systems nationally. We're not capturing the data. On the other hand, we're also not able, because we're not capturing the data, to draw any conclusions about it and make any preventive choices in terms of interventions. Right. So that's one of the things that uh, is working against us. I think one of the other things that you mentioned that we're working uh, against it is this movement to decriminalize domestic violence. I don't know what statistics they would be using to justify that. It seems to me that they're working. They're using victims and their testimony to work against society in general by using survivors saying that they want to fix the relationship with their abusers. It's very sad. I just really hope that uh, this gets a lot of attention because it's very unfair that this continues to happen. I think the fact that one person in this country is taking it upon herself with some help from the public. She does crowdsource some of the data. So everybody who sees an article in the news about a woman who's been murdered, they're welcome to send Dawn an email. But other than that, the fact that one woman in this country is taking it upon herself to create this database, I think says a lot about how we value women in this country, right? She should be getting a lot more attention than this. The media should be all over this, but they just seem not to care. And, and not just the media, but institutions that can support the work. Right. So universities, research institutions, um, to help provide the infrastructure and the tools to really do analysis that can be used to, as, as Dawn said, she wants to use it to inform policy right. and to show elected officials and so when, when she and I talked, we referenced Kathleen Russell of the Center for Judicial Excellence, who has a child murder map, and how it would be great if they could work together to combine those databases, one capturing the data of women who are killed, and one capturing the data of children who are killed. And very often, there's a very strong intersection and high intersection between these two because the women and the children who are being killed are killed at the same time, potentially in murder-suicides or just murders by the very likely male partner in the relationship, in the family. Right. And so she has a lot of uh, barriers that she has to deal with. Another thing that she mentioned is like the amount of data that she's capturing, right? Sometimes if she's asking for photos, they may not necessarily be available or victims may be afraid to uh, identify themselves so, so, because there's a lot of fear. Then another thing that she mentioned was these, the great guy narrative where a lot of people protect the abuser. And they think, well, because so-and-so was able to help me mow my lawn or they did all these great things for me that they couldn't be this awful monster that you're painting despite the fact that they are. So it's yet another one of those barriers that are, that are shaping the narrative. She also mentioned how journalists 
may also have these biases, which makes it very difficult for the public to understand. I believe a couple of episodes in the past, we talked about how certain headlines are very, very misleading. And that's something that continues to happen, where you, you talk about an abuser like, oh, you're trying to paint them in the best light possible. Yeah, like with Brock Turner, the Stanford rapist. He's repeatedly in the media referred to as this champion swimmer and not as a rapist, not as a convicted rapist. Meanwhile, these media, what Don and other people have referred to as media journalistic standards with regard to reporting on gender-based violence, domestic violence, rape, and sexual assault, these are very problematic on many levels. One level, as you said, because it reinforces culture and it doesn't actually educate the public enough about these issues. So it reinforces myths that that these are exceptions rather than the rule. It hides the fact that our culture actually promotes and rewards people to engage in these behaviors and that you can be a quote unquote nice guy and still be an abuser or a rapist. Right. Like movies where they depict the nerd who is frustrated and putting the, the blame on a woman for their sexual needs, right? So that's something that, that's a narrative that continuously plays out in the media. And like I mentioned before, it even works in the opposite way where women are made vi the villains, while statistically that's not accurate, right? So it's much more likely for a male to be the abuser. And it, it just, if you weren't informed about the statistics, it would just, you'd be completely- You mean it's much more, oh, you said, what did you just say? It's much more likely for the male to be the abuser. Correct. So I said it was much more likely for the male to be the abuser. And then when we look at the narrative, it seems like a woman is more likely to lie and, and that if you, it's really hard to believe a woman. So in general, this is something that we should be paying more attention to so we can understand it. It's, it's something that happens everywhere, whether it's TV or the internet, websites like Reddit, there is this toxic masculinity that's pervasive in every part of culture. Not only does it not only does it reinforce these myths that are harmful, but by reinforcing myths, it prevents us from being able to engage in prevention. So really be able to identify behaviors that we might think are unhealthy in our own lives, in our own relationships, and be, or in our friends' relationships when we see it and makes us unwilling to speak out when we observe it. Exactly. A another problem for Dawn specifically is when journalists don't adhere to standards for reporting on domestic violence with integrity and with accuracy, it makes it harder for her to identify them in the news. Right. She mentioned that maybe one of the possible solutions would be to educate journalists on feminism or these topics so they understand and are more responsible when they are providing these catchy uh, news articles, right? And I think also beyond educating journalists, uh, we've also referenced in the past the responsibility that all of us have as readers and consumers of the news to call out these institutions. So we should write letters to the editor. We should let them know that this is not okay. We should request that the journalists who are reporting on these headlines or the editors who are allowing these headlines to, to get approved are going to be reprimanded or held accountable in some way. You can't expect someone who's going to be 
a sports reporter, for example, not to learn about the rules of the sports, right? Right, so, to be able to report on sports, absolutely. like you, you can't. You're not going to send someone who doesn't know anything about football to watch a game, right? Right, that and, wouldn't make sense. And similarly, you shouldn't do that for gender-based violence either. Right. If you're going to report on it, you should be informed on it. I agree. I know that part of the problem with accountability is money. I think the one of the reasons that these misleading titles exist is because they want to sell no, more newspapers or magazines or articles, whatever it is that that they want to do. I think that's part of the reason, and it it's sad to see that the impact is much more harmful and cost to society than just the the gain that they're getting. Yeah, and that actually brings us to the next episode, episode 49, with Rachel Louise Snyder, a professor of literature at American University and author of the new book, No Visible Bruises, which essentially, in my interpretation, talks about coercive control, um, hence her title, No Visible Bruises. Right. And she characterizes domestic violence as intimate partner terrorism. What are your thoughts on that? It's eye-opening, I think, to a lot of people to take a look at something like domestic violence and don't look at it as, oh, well, it's something that they should go to to the the police for. So, for example, she mentioned how a lot of people will go to the police if they were attacked, if they were hit by by their spouse. But there's a lot that doesn't leave marks. It doesn't, people are going to think, well, you know, he he threatened me, but does that mean that I have to go to the police? Is it, there, There's like those gray areas. And a lot of the things like objectifying them, I, I think she mentioned a story where um, he would be, the abuser was recording his wife and, and taking pictures and sexualizing her in front of their children. And those, that that is clear abuse, but people, women may not necessarily have that support system in order to defend themselves from something like that. So, so it's important to, um, to understand that you, that maybe if coercive control was criminalized, people would then be able to take steps to address that, right? Both in the legal way and, um, and actually. Well, the case that you're talking about is the main, uh, set of characters in her book, No Visible Bruises, mm-hmm. uh, Michelle monson Monsieur and her husband, Rocky, where Rocky had repeatedly been using a video recorder to record his wife, Michelle, and the kids. And it was clear in the video recording that Michelle did not want to be recorded. um, And she kept protesting. And in the end, she just stopped protesting and resigned herself that she basically gave up her agency as Rachel and I talked about. So the problem that you're you're bringing up is that the criminal justice system isn't sufficient to deal with the whole set of circumstances in a couple's life that can characterize one person as the victim of receiving harm uh, and someone as a perpetrator of giving harm. Right. And so if our criminal justice system is based on one-time incidents, like you may be threatening me, you may be using a gun to intimidate me, um, and every day I come home and I'm worried that if I step out of line, if I don't cook the the meal at the right temperature and have it ready at the right time, 
that you're going to be angry and explode. And maybe you never touched me physically, but my living in fear every day, that form of terrorism, as Rachel describes, might lead me one day to take a knife when you're telling me that you don't like the way I'm cutting the vegetables and just stab you. And then I would be the one who was incarcerated, given what we just talked about with Dorchin, because of the high rates of female gender violence survivors who are incarcerated. And you would not be seen as having done anything wrong and having any part in the crime that I committed. And so if we were to look at the crime as coercive control, then it would be clearly recognizable in that fact pattern that you were the one who was the perpetrator and I'm the one who's the victim. Right. And that's how you can um, show that you're doing this in self-defense. I mean, some of the examples that she gave, I think that that the recording is one of the, it's horrible, but I think she also mentioned that he bought a, a snake, I believe, and uh, threatened to let the snake loose or, or just basically use that as, as a form of, of, of fear, which is... Yeah, intimidation. Like he, Rocky basically bought a snake and said if whatever, you know, he said to her in terms of her not complying with his quote unquote orders, that he would let it out in bed when she's sleeping one day or um, in some other location. And and of course, if you're afraid of being bitten by a snake or poisoned by a snake, you're, you're always going to be complying and nobody has to actually lift a finger to touch you for you to be a prisoner. Right. One of the things that she mentioned was, uh, which I thought was very, was very eye-opening, was if this problem, if this issue is addressed, it will help men, right? Because a woman, if a woman ends up stabbing a man or, or defending herself in this way, um, men are dying because of it. So it not only is going to help a woman, but it'll it'll definitely help uh, men as well. So I think this is a, an issue that should be addressed everywhere by both sexes. One of the things that Rachel and I didn't get to delve deeply into were some of the characteristics of abusers or batterers. And I had asked her if there were certain personality traits. um, And she talked about behaviors rather than personality traits. I want to add some quotes from her book that are very illuminating. One of them is by Jimmy, a former inmate who is now reformed and is running batterer programs in jail. And he said to Rachel, quote, I fed off of women who had no dads, women who were sexually assaulted, and then I stole their souls, unquote. So there was a, a very predator and prey kind of behavior where if you as a woman were vulnerable in any way, you could be potentially targeted. And then Jimmy also said in another quote, if a gal didn't have a father, I knew I could get her, unquote. So it sounds like he used basically women as, as, as objects and, and he would find the opportunity uh, in order to, to take advantage of them, um, which is, I, it's, it's, it's awful, but I think in many ways society does reinforce this type of behavior, right? Because not only are boys in general treated or expected to compete more and treat things like a competition, but um, 
one of the things I, I think that we was spoken was how we see power as dominance. Like dominance is an expression of power. And I think that that's something that he was raised with. And it's something that all of us, I think a lot of us were, were raised with. Um, so I think that that allows the door for a lot of people to uh, continue these behaviors and, ex- and exploit their power over 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 the vulnerable, right? It's not like she, he was he was fighting against somebody or, or competing against somebody of his equal. It's it's he's taking advantage of these of of these things that he sees as weaknesses. I, I want to also share some other personality traits, I guess, sure. that were um, written in the book. Mm-hmm. Another expert said that ab- abusers tend to have inflexible personalities. Mm-hmm. And another pattern that emerged is uh, during a batter um, observation, a batter program observation, it turned out that a lot of these men had experienced domestic violence as a child. So they're, they were witnesses to their fathers being abusive to their mothers. Mm-hmm. And for the most part, these men responded to their father's abuse by, in a way, either excusing it or minimizing it and contextualizing of the f- behaviors of the father while demonizing their mothers and putting the blame on the mothers. And so they carried on this narrative into their adult lives, which I think says a lot about why it's so important that we keep children who are witnesses to domestic violence away from the abusive parent. Right. Otherwise, they might, to me, it seems like they're normalizing this behavior and it continues on in another person. So so it's just, it, it, it perpetuates it. Not just normalizing, but also distorting it. Right. Because here, in this case, the men were viewing their fathers as the victim and the mothers as the um, provocators. The mothers provoked their fathers to engage in this abusive behavior towards them. Therefore, the father was the victim. Right. So, yeah, so it changes the, the narrative altogether. So people and, and, and so that, that's actually something that does does happen a lot in public opinion. I think uh, in the Internet, you can see a lot of people that that make the woman to be out the the, the perpetrator. There's this term that a lot of men use uh, putting them in the friend zone, like, even though. A woman is not interested in the man and they're just like hey you know what's okay let's just be friends the woman is now all of a sudden the um, the provocator and or, or or the person who's in the wrong and because she supposedly put him in the friend zone in reality it's the man who is putting her in the relationship zone so that's that's just an, another example that I see she mentioned that boys are much less likely to cry than than girls so she felt that and i I would agree is that uh tears are a form of power this it's something that is important to express everybody has these feelings of sadness and crying is an ultimate form of expression of that sadness of those feelings and is a detriment to boys and males in general for them not to show 
that they are sad. And so in many ways, that's why women are just more capable of dealing with emotions than boys are because boys are just discouraged from doing this. And so that harms their future relationships when they're dealing with their intimate partners where they're not open to discussing their feelings. Well, I think also just to add to that, she was also Rachel also referenced one of her female students who came in and cried and apologized for her crying. And so there was not just that men are less likely to cry, but that women also are, or in general as a society, we see crying as weakness, men and women, um, even when there are legitimate reasons to cry, rather than seeing it as an expression of your feelings, which is authentic. Right. So those are some of the things that really stood out for me. I also want to bring up the fact that Rachel talked about Ibram Kendi, a leading national scholar of racism at American University. She was talking about this colleague of hers down the hall um, who wrote a book called Stamp from the Beginning, The Definitive History of Racism in America. And, and, and the analogy that I made uh, from Ibram Kendi's work is that ignorance and hate Uh, or ignorance, rather, and hate don't lead to racism, but self-interest, particularly economic, political, and cultural self-interest drives racist policies that benefit that self-interest. And when the policies are challenged because they produce inequalities and racist ideas spring up to justify those policies. And similarly, what I said was with regard to sexist and misogynistic policies and sexism in our country, that education and love are not going to be sufficient, are not the answer for addressing that either. So teaching men to be more loving or compassionate is not going to help them if they have male power and privilege and are and their self-interest is to protect that male power and privilege politically, culturally, and in the interpersonal relationship. Um, so we must change policy first that produce these inequalities so that the sexist ideas that justify those policies can be eliminated. And therefore, the ERA, Equal Rights Amendment, is what we need because we have to force policy to change in order for the behavior and culture and attitudes to follow. Which is something that was highlighted in episode 50 with Richie Rosetta, who mentioned that as a child, he was already introduced to uh, feminism and these ideas, um, but he still led a life that ended with him, well, ended up with him going through the prison system. Even though he was already introduced this before, he felt still that during that time, it was important for him to fit in. And he was trying to fit in a culture that was um, that excluded women and, and want, wanted to basically promote these forms of power and dominance, right? So knowledge, as you said, isn't enough. And I think policy is something that could definitely make a change. And this is one of the reasons that we're, we're doing this podcast. Exactly. We're, we're educating people and giving them information so that we could dispel myths that hold us all back and keep us from seeing the ways in which our systems and cultures and structure, so our, the way our systems and structures continue to enslave us and oppress us. 
And hopefully that information will help be able to change mindsets. And the changed mindset can help us change behavior, can activate us to be engaged citizens in our fight for our all of our freedom and equality and liberation. Absolutely. We can start talking about episode 50 with uh, Richie. You started off with a little bit about his history. You spoke about, well, he spoke about how he had a working dad who wasn't very present throughout his childhood. And he had a mom who was pretty much passive. He also spoke about corporal punishment with the, with children, right? That he was spanked, which is something that I know in Hispanic culture is very common. And it's something that... I mean, even I went through that, right? It's, it's, it seemed as a norm that's hopefully being phased out, right? And I think even in my family particularly, it has changed over the time. Even though I was spanked as a child, I don't think my sister went through the same. So I do think that my parents, for example, I, I think they're progressive, I guess, in that way. Well, I think to your point, I think a lot of minority cultures, maybe even immigrant cultures, use spanking as a means to make sure that children are well behaved because they're, it's in the larger context of keeping everyone in line so that we're quote unquote well received by white society. Right. That we're not going to be considered uncouth or uncivilized or stand out in any way beyond which we already are because of our race or class. And so if our children are misbehaving, there's not yet one additional thing to um, have them criticize when we're out in public. Despite the fact that there are so many systems who, that, that are built to have us maintained, maintain that status quo, right? Richie also mentioned that even before he went to prison, he learned about the school-to-prison pipeline and just a whole bunch of different things in society, like even in religion, where he saw his father support some of these bad ideas, right? And 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 so even though he was a person that was constantly um, aware of these things, he still, he still was part of the, fell into that, that part of that system, right? And another thing that really stood out to me was, I was just as surprised as you to hear about the recidivism rates of young people as opposed to the older population. I, if I had to guess before that episode, uh, and that's why I actually had to research it myself just to double check to see if that was true. And yes, sure enough, it was true. Yeah, recidivism rates for younger people are much, much higher. Uh, I believe it was uh, over 30% for, for the young population, while it's close to 9% for uh, people that were much older, older than the age of 45. So he, his explanation was that maybe people are just too tired to continue their, their bad behavior. That could be it. It's very hard for me to guess. Well, Richie also said that it's uh, hormones because your brain doesn't stop developing until age 25. And so there's a level of mellowing out after that as you get older that you just um, chill. You're more chill. Yeah, you're more chill. That's another thing that he mentioned, right? That people, him as, a, as an adult understands that you don't need to fit in you don't maybe that need also to fit in is something that is not as urgent once you get older so a lot of these things that seem so important to us at a young age all of a sudden become less important and you see with age as as you mature that what what really is important instead of 
instead of what you thought was important before, like fitting in. What did you think about Richie's use of Bill Hooks uh, and her feminist texts to teach feminism to inmates? Like I said, it, it, it's great teaching that, and he was in, that he introduced all of that to um, the inmates, and that while there was some pushback that a lot of people did, did were open to it, right? But of course, because of the systems, there's so many things that they that they're going to be cautious about. I think he, I remember him telling a story about how he spoke to another inmate who he called a victim or accused them of being a victim. And I guess in that culture, it's something that you don't do because um, people feel threatened by it. Or it, you're considered weak, and weakness is a feminine trait. Right. And so, yeah, so that would be, you don't want to be in that culture considered feminine at all, right? It's, in, the, in particular, I think in jail, it would probably be dangerous in many ways, right? Did it inspire you at all to want to read Bell Hooks? Uh, I, I I will actually <laughs> read Bell Hooks. Uh, <laughs> little by little, there's a whole bunch of uh, literature that I have to I have to be familiarized with, but little by little, just taking baby steps here. Have you had a chance to share Richie's story with the youth that you work with? At the moment, I have been able to talk to my students about the podcast, and hopefully they are now going to be listening to it and informing themselves about a lot of the things that we speak about. So I know that many people who are people who listen to the podcast, including the students that I speak to, have taken it upon themselves to create workshops uh, to let themselves, let other people know about feminism and the different ways that toxic masculinity has a negative impact on today's society. So I am hoping that they are going to move forward with that and and get more people to know about this. That's awesome. I think I think it would be great for us to hear more about the students' experience, and maybe we can have one of them on the show. I do maintain contact with them, so... Let's follow their progress, and let's hear from the youth what their learnings are. Absolutely. There are so many things that Richie spoke about that I feel not just the students, but people in general would agree with. Maybe they just don't know. For example, one of the things that Richie said was that he's a prison abolitionist, and maybe people might not know what that is or may not understand why a person would want to get rid of um, the prison system. And I think he explained it in a very eloquent way where he talked about how our culture is such that prison is a punishment. It is It is about revenge. It is about hurting somebody in a way that they hurt someone else. It's not really built there to address the issues, the underlying issues that cause that behavior. So if a person is engaged in uh, some sort of awful behavior where it's, it's, it's harmful, there are ways to address the behavior without necessarily taking them out of society. Although he said himself that removing somebody out of society for a certain amount of time, he's not against that. It's the whole idea behind it that he's against. And so I believe a lot of people, I believe our youth in general is definitely open to that, especially uh, youth who are, who are in um, or in minorities who are um, in a disadvantaged 
situation where they uh, see a lot of their family and friends who have been in, in the prison system and they've seen the effects of this, they would definitely be able to support something like this. Yeah, I want to add that Richie was very clear that he believes that the current prison system and criminal justice system is harmful because, as you say, it's there to punish and not transform. However, we also talked about domestic violence as a subset of crimes. And if someone who's engaging in a pattern of power and control or coercive control um, cannot change their behavior or change their mindset, um, then he also supports that those kinds of people, if they're going to remain harmful, they should be separated out um, and put away but not in the form of a prison, as we call it today, but in something that's healthier and supportive of um, of their transformation and believing that they can transform, but still separating them. Absolutely. It's, it's a solution that people should be listening to. I believe that the counterculture against that or, or people not wanting that to uh, happen is because of fear. I think... If he were to say something like, oh, well, we should get rid of prisons, people are going to think, well, you want to get rid of prisons, then we're going to be overrun by criminals, and it's going to be extremely unsafe out there, and, and, and we don't want to do that. That's awful. It's very similar, I would say, in the way that when people bring up the idea of, let's say, uh, our, our borders, right, where they think, oh, well, uh, you don't want to build a wall. Well, that means you just want oh, a whole bunch of immigrants coming into the United States. It's going to be chaos. And it's it's just they, they think that the opposite is therefore true. And they're very afraid. So bringing this to uh, a conversation would, I think, in general, be helpful to everybody. Just it's difficult because I, I, the money in politics is something that does have it does stop a lot of people from wanting changes like this to happen. Because, for example, for-profit prisons would not want something like this, right? Because they're getting a lot of labor out of uh, basically slavery. Yeah, so hopefully our conversation today, looking back on these four episodes, will inspire our listeners to dig in a deep, a little bit deeper. Uh, I don't know, if Michael, when you're looking back in these episodes, if you have a chance to click on the links to some of the references that the guest and I talk about, but I think they're really a rich source of opportunity to learn and hopefully inspire other people to want to be introduced to our podcast and to listen and to subscribe. Absolutely. I hope that anybody who's listening, that uh, you gain something from this. Thank you, Michael. Until next time. Thank you. Bye, Terry. Thanks for listening to this episode of Engendered. The show is sponsored by Can Do It Q&A, a peer-based knowledge platform that connects social service providers in advice, community, and learning. You can join Can Do It Q&A for free at qna.kanduit.com. I'd love to get your feedback and hear any questions or suggestions you may have for the show. Please email us at engenderedpodcast at gmail.com with your questions.